0: We are about halfway, as hard as it is to believe, halfway through our exploration of the parables of the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 13. And I want to encourage you to take a moment and grab your Bible or the Bible that's there in the pew and open up to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be starting at verse 44 in just a moment, but I want to kind of refresh if you haven't been with us or maybe you've been in and out, that what we've been learning about not just the parables in Matthew 13, but all of the parables that Jesus tells, that they are not simply nice stories with a moral at the end. Oftentimes they get reduced to that. No, the parables that Jesus gives us are divine revelations. They're divine revelations of a different world order. And this is particularly pronounced in Matthew 13, where the focus is on the kingdom of God. They are divine revelations of a different world order, a world order that is not a system of rewards, Based on our performance, but a new heaven and a new earth rooted in God's choice to bless. These parables told by Jesus are intended to challenge our thinking. So it should cause us to have some pause if we think, oh, that's obvious, that's easy. They were intended to challenge our thinking, to break open our hearts, and in the end to redefine our actions. Because the kingdom of God, that is the will and reign of God, runs counter to our way of seeing things and engaging others. Our Father's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So as we press into these stories, we need to keep that in mind. And as we press in further into Matthew chapter 13, it's worth noting, if you haven't caught it, that Jesus' audience has grown smaller from where we started. Where at first he was sharing these parables with large crowds, now he is speaking directly to his disciples. Remember, he's intending to send them out to declare the good news of the kingdom. They're going to have their first go-around even before he goes to the cross. And he intends to send them out to declare the good news of the kingdom. So Jesus is seeking to ensure his disciples are beginning to understand the nature of what they, and by extension for we are disciples, what we are supposed to proclaim. Beloved, Jesus offers us these parables so that we would not only share in his vision of the kingdom, But also answer the call to become involved as his followers, to become active, you see, in a new way of living, of being, of thinking. And I believe the excitement and urgency of this new way of life really comes clear, even more clear in these next two parables that we're going to look at this morning. They're our focus, and they're in Matthew 13, and we'll be reading verses 44 through 46. Let us hear the word of the Lord. As Jesus says... The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, The first story Jesus tells us is of a man who, while digging in a field, comes upon a treasure. And this man, once he finds this treasure, buries it back in the ground and then goes off and buys the field. Now, this scenario that Jesus lays out may seem a little odd to us, but it actually was quite commonplace in his day. Back in the time of Jesus, regular folk didn't have the kind of rooms in their homes or secure places in which to keep and protect their liquid, if you will, their tangible assets. Most of their, their assets were property and, and uh, land, but the family fortunes or heirlooms, there wasn't a safe or someplace else to store them, so they often would bury them in the ground in case a war came or some kind of siege from bandits. That way, it could be safe. And so that's what's being described here. A very common place of finding someone's treasure buried in the ground. And and the key thing to really notice here is that the treasure is hidden. It's not openly displayed for all. Jesus is once again kind of hitting something that he's already told us in previous parables. That the treasure of the kingdom of heaven is hidden to many. Now... This may not strike us as all that insightful, but I really want us, it's so important when we hear these parables to kind of hear them the way the disciples first heard them. And I can tell you that for the disciples that were there the first time, this would have been hard to believe. The disciples would have been like, How could anyone miss the dawn of the reign of God? How could anyone miss the coming of the Lord? And yet, what Jesus is describing here is not just something that will be, it's something that already is. Because after all, what do we witness even to this point in the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What do we witness from the moment John the Baptist begins preaching in the desert? What do we witness in the aftermath of Jesus emerging out of the wilderness? We see crowds, great growing crowds, yes. But not all of them are believing or following Jesus. Think about it. Even in the midst, as Matthew and Mark and Luke and John record, even in the midst of people saying that this is profound teaching of such authority no one has ever heard, even despite the signs and wonders of miracles and healings, many still cannot see. They struggle to perceive the riches of the kingdom of heaven in their midst. So what Jesus is describing here is something that's already happening. But what he's describing here is also something that continues to happen. Jesus is perhaps more renowned now, more well-known now, than he was even back then. His teachings, his miracles, his sacrifice on the cross, the glory of his resurrection, into how many languages have they been translated? How many institutions, how many movements, how many lives have been changed by the, the risen person of Christ, and yet for so many in our world today, Jesus is perceived as nothing more than a good man or a great teacher. The image of the cross, once a symbol of fear and death, has become through Christ a symbol of life, of hope, of resurrection. And yet in our day, for many people, the cross has become a fashion statement, a piece of jewelry, a part of their home decor. And it's become all of this, something that they have that they keep without any realization or recognition of the cross being the key that unlocks the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. Then and now, not everyone can see what God is doing right in front of them. The way Jesus tells it here, the treasure of the kingdom is found unexpectedly. This man, as Jesus describes it, was not in the field digging for treasure. He was digging for something else. What we do not know. Maybe he was just plowing his field. But whatever he was doing, he stumbles upon this treasure. He wasn't even looking for it when he found it. Now, I don't want to read too much into this parable, because that's a temptation we can often do as well, but it makes me think that maybe our expectations can get in the way of what we actually see. I mean, if we're honest, our visualizations, the way we conceptualize, the way we talk about God's will, the way we talk about heaven, they frequently have less to do with what the Bible actually says, don't they? They frequently have less to do what the Bible says about how the Lord has already acted. You know, we talk about God opens a door or closes a door, God opens a window or closes a window. You're not going to find that in the Bible. The Bible never describes God working that way, the kingdom being that way. And I'm sorry to break this to all of you who are looking forward to it, but when people pass from this life into the next, we like to talk about, oh, they're fishing in heaven right now. They're doing nine holes. You're not going to find that in Scripture. I'm not saying it's not there. My point is the way that we often talk about how God works about how what heaven is like has more to do with the way we think than what the Bible actually says. It has more to do out of our assumptions about how we believe God should work, ought to be acting in our lives and in our world. And this, th- that's, a, that's a concern because, my friends, when our perception, rather than the revelation of Christ, becomes the lens by which we view our Father's world and all that is in it, We tend to have huge blind spots. We tend to miss things. I mean, isn't that what happened to the religious leaders of Jesus' day? Wasn't that their issue? I mean, even though their whole lives, right, were supposedly centered on their devotion to the Lord, living attentively and hopefully in anticipation of the kingdom's coming, they failed to see what was happening right in front of them. Who was in the flesh? standing before them, the one, the Messiah, for whom they and generations before them had been waiting for their whole lives. My friends, sometimes our expectations get in the way. Sometimes our expectations get in the way, but what I love about this first parable is Jesus assures us God's kingdom is the kind of treasure we stumble on despite ourselves. God's kingdom is the kind of treasure we will stumble on despite ourselves. His first parable here underlies how God gives us a hidden treasure independently of our own effort. Even when we don't know what we're looking for, or maybe we aren't even looking for anything, we're just doing our work in the field like we always do, we may may not be looking for God, but God always has a way of finding us. And when we unexpectedly trip over the treasure of our Father's presence, the glory of his truth and love, suddenly, just like the man in this story, we will realize God's reign, God's will, God's way is what we wanted all along. Jesus is who we were looking for, even if we didn't know it. That's the grace of the kingdom of heaven. That's the grace of the kingdom of heaven. It's it's a grace that by, it's the grace of God that, some of us will stumble into the kingdom. And it's by that same grace that others of us will find exactly what we're looking for. And that brings us to the second parable. They're different. You notice that difference. One, someone stumbles upon the kingdom. But in the first parable, someone's digging who doesn't even know there's a treasure in the field. But the second story is different. Jesus shares this story that has intentionality behind it. In this second parable, we have a merchant who is actively looking for a treasure, right? We have a person who's searching for fine pearls. And to step back a little bit, pearls, more so then than even now, were very rare, and incredibly expensive in the Near East. You could find them in the Persian Gulf or in the Indian Ocean, but they were priceless. And therefore they were unobtainable except to anyone but the very rich. And so Jesus describes here a merchant, someone who probably dealt in jewels and stones, who was on a search for the very best pearls that he could find. You might say this merchant was on a quest for the best. And lo and behold, he finds the best. He finds a pearl of great value. It's in fact the most perfect pearl he's ever seen. And this speaks to another group of people in this room. Some of us stumble upon the kingdom, kingdom of God. Others of us, and you know who you are today, are very driven people. You know who you are, you driven people, you. Goals. I have my goals. I set them. I work, I accomplish, move on, boom, boom, boom. Some of us are very driven people. We seek, right, we pursue, we want the best. People who are driven don't go, I want adequate. I'll take the average. People who are driven want the best. That's why we set goals, that's why we measure, why we work, because we want the best. We are driven to find the pearls of this life. And I wanna say to those of you who are those kind of people, there is absolutely nothing wrong with seeking. Jesus tells us elsewhere, in fact, if we seek, we will find. The key in this second parable is realizing what the best is, where the real treasure is to be found. You see, the thing is, the best is not the best according to us. It's not the best according to the aspirations of this world. The best is defined by God's will, by God's reign. The best is defined by the character of God's kingdom, This this tension that I'm trying to get at, maybe I can help you to appreciate it by going back into the story. Consider again the merchant. He's someone who we're told is actively searching for fine pearls. Given this, it's not hard to conceive that this merchant probably already possessed quite a collection of pearls, right? In that moment, when the merchant finds the greatest pearl of all, these other pearls now can create some difficulty for him. After all, the merchant up to this point has invested a lot of time and energy to collect them. The merchant, although he has found many good pearls, still has remained thirsty for one of great value, and now he's found it. And in that moment, when the merchant finds what he's been looking for, he faces a choice, a decision to let go of everything else, all the good he has obtained in order to take hold of something greater than himself, The best he could ever hope to get. The merchant has to let go of everything else in order to satisfy his thirst to receive the full worth of the pearl. And I want to tell you, that isn't always easy. It can be hard to let go. I mean, we can find plenty of pearls in this world apart from the one we find in Jesus Christ, can we not? We can find plenty of pearls in this world apart from the one we find in Jesus Christ, we, find, we may find treasures in our career, in our relationships, in our family, in our possessions, in our studies, in our travels. And all of these things can be good in and of themselves, good. And yet, they will not be enough. No matter how much we have of them, They will not be enough to satisfy our deepest longing. We can spend our time, our money, our energy, our other resources, having impactful experiences, even doing good for others, and yet the center of our life can still remain curiously vacant and empty. Beloved, to be clear, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of heaven, and all these things will be added unto you. What Jesus is calling us here through this second parable is to discern between what is good and what is better. What Jesus is calling us to is to trust the better will follow after we embrace the best. The better will follow after we embrace the best. What is the best? What is the kingdom of God? John did a brilliant job taking us through the whole of Scripture to really give us a vision of what the kingdom of God is. I'm going to give a much more truncated, much more intimate, personal kind of understanding of that from Scripture. The best, the kingdom of God, as I read it in Scripture, is this. It is the affirmation of God's presence with us. It is the revelation of God's will for us. It is the beginning of And ultimately the fulfillment of the peace and security and joy of knowing and fulfilling the core of our Father's call for your life. That's the best. That's the kingdom of God. And that's the micro version of it, but you can expand it to the macro, implying it for the world. And what Jesus wants us to understand is once we have this, once we have the best, once we have the kingdom of heaven, everything else follows. Everything else follows that we need But everything else follows, provided that once we find this treasure, when we see, when we understand, when we experience what the kingdom of God is, that we yield, that we submit, that we live under the goodwill and gracious rule of our Father over and above everything else. And it's this Insight that I'm really hitting hard right now is what ties these two parables together. They are different, but this is what they have in common. What they have in common is the response to the kingdom. Did you notice? On the one hand, we have a man digging in a field who unexpectedly finds treasure. And it's a treasure so valuable that it's worth more than the field it is in. Its worth is so inestimable that this man goes and sells all he has in order to purchase the field and the treasure it contains. On the other hand, we have a merchant who's actively seeking fine pearls and discovers one of great value. But like the first man, this pearl is so priceless, it's gonna cost this merchant everything. It's gonna cost this merchant the sum total of everything else he has in order to take hold of it. But just like the first man, he doesn't hesitate to sell everything in order to acquire the pearl. These two stories intersect in the shared revelation by Jesus that belonging to the kingdom of God is worth more than everything else. Nothing in this world can match the treasure, the blessing of living under and according to the will of God. Now, again, you have to understand that the disciples, when they heard this, were probably really confused. Who would argue with this, right? Who would argue with this? Surely no one would underestimate the value, how valuable the reign of God is. Who would, who would argue with that? But again, remember the context. Remember where, how Jesus is telling this. Remember where they were expecting a kingdom come through an awesome display of God's power and might against Rome. Jesus is announcing to them, preparing them for the kingdom of God to come through the humble form of a servant displaying the power of forgiveness and the might of love through teaching and signs and wonders that culminate in victory by way of surrender on the cross. Jesus wants them to know, wants us to know, despite all appearances to the contrary, in the midst of the shock and surprise that will come, before the seemingly unmet unmet expectations of Israel and maybe ourselves, the way of the cross, the glory of the empty tomb, the promise of the Spirit rising up on the horizon, this is the treasure. This is the kingdom of God. And this treasure, the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't one treasure among others. It's the supreme treasure. It is the ultimate pearl because it fully satisfies the needs of the mind, the heart, and the soul. The gift of God's grace, of unconditional love, unmerited forgiveness, divine righteousness, everlasting peace, eternal life. This is not one pearl among many pearls. It is the most precious pearl because it literally saves. It reconciles, redeems, and completely changes the world. The kingdom is the one needful thing. Nothing else matches up to it. Even though God gives it to us freely, by grace through faith, Jesus wants us to understand even though it is given to us freely, it is worth nothing less than everything we have to give. And so my friends, these parables for me, both of them serve as a diagnostic for us in our relationship to Christ and his kingdom. Don't know the last time you looked at this card other than maybe to wave fan yourself in the midst of the heat. We changed the color so you might notice it again, the Kairos card. Always asking when we hear the word of God, what is God saying to me and what should I do about it? Those are the general questions, but let me give you some more specific ones in light of what we're hearing this morning. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? As you sit here this morning, what do you believe in your life you have found? What is the pearl of your life? What is the pearl of your life? Where is your treasure? What would you never really want to lose? What is worth sacrificing everything else for? Maybe not the way I phrase them, but in their essence, these are all questions to which we have answers. These are very basic questions of life to which we have all have answers. But today, through these two parables, Our answers are now being questioned in light of the kingdom of heaven. We're all here. That's a good thing. That's a start, right? We've all, I imagine, as we like to say, found Jesus. We've all found Jesus. We're all here. But here is the question What is the kingdom of God worth to us? What value do we place on our relationship with God, on his relationship with us through Jesus? Is it the one thing? Is it the treasure of your life? Is acknowledging the Lord's presence in this world, deferring to the will of our Father in the purpose, the call and direction of your life, is that your ultimate priority? Or is it just one relationship among a number of things that are significant to you? One of many things you place alongside other important things in your life. Again, back to the confusion of the disciples, who wouldn't want the kingdom? Who wouldn't want the kingdom? As I look around at each one of you, I can't conceive of any of us in this room, a person in this room who doesn't desire, who isn't willing to embrace the love, the forgiveness, the justice, the mercy of the kingdom of God. I mean, after all, aren't these the cries of our hearts? Isn't this what we cry out to God for? Isn't this, this is, we appeal to these dimensions of our Father's reign whenever hardship or desperation drive us to our knees to pray. When hardship or desperation come, Father, we want your love. Father, we want your kingdom come. We want forgiveness. We want peace. We want justice. When hardship and desperation come, these are the cries of our hearts. We want it, and we want it bad. But apart from hardship or desperation, how many of us are still trying to straddle both sides of the fence? We want the will of God, but we want our will too. We want forgiveness, but we want to pass judgment on others. We want unconditional love, and we want to hold back and deny love to our enemies. We want to be a part of the kingdom. We want to be a part of the kingdom of peace, of justice and salvation. Amen and we insist on contributing to a world of violence, hatred, and despair. We all want the kingdom of God. I can't imagine any one of you who would say no to that. We all want the kingdom of God, but we aren't all willing to give our lives for it. My friends, not everyone in this room is Lutheran, per se, we come from different traditions, but if you don't know this, and you probably do because we, we bang this drum pretty loudly, in the Protestant tradition, protest, in the midst of a great trouble, troubling time in the church, we as Protestants and as Lutherans, there's others in our camp, have just been adamant and animated about m- making sure everyone understands one thing above all others. And the call sign is grace alone. We want people to understand that we don't have to do anything to earn God's love. We we get hot and fired up about that, that we don't have to do anything to earn God's love. It is grace alone. And I want you to hear me say this morning a loud, resounding amen. We don't have to do anything to earn God's love. We don't have to do anything to earn our admission into the kingdom. But beloved, beloved, what we need to say just as loudly, just as animated, just as forcefully, is even though we don't have to do anything to earn God's love, doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything in response to that love. It doesn't mean because we don't have to do anything to be admitted into the kingdom of heaven, it doesn't mean that we don't have to do anything as a result of being a part of God's kingdom. Because the thing is, Our estimation of the worth of the kingdom, your estimation of the worth of the kingdom tells you where you stand in relation to being a part of our Father's world. Those who have truly seen the value of the kingdom will not be satisfied with anything less than the way of the Lord. The way of the Lord, that's it. Those whose hearts have truly been broken Not pricked, broken. Those whose hearts are being remade by the grace of God cannot function, hear me, they cannot function without the blood of the Lamb. Those who have breathed the new life of the Spirit, who have tasted the waters of salvation through baptism, will give up everything else to draw repeatedly from those wells of the kingdom. Now, talk like this, my talk, echoing the talk of Christ, you know, this starts to smack of being really, really radical. It seems like it's just really demanding. I mean, is it, this kind of urgency is, I mean, are, seriously? Is this the level of urgency we have to have as followers of Christ? Is this unrealistic? Is this unnatural? Is it? How many of you have heard of Pokemon Go. Raise your hand. I want to know what what I'm dealing with in here. How many of you have heard of Pokemon Go? How many of you don't want to hear about it? Oh, I don't want to hear about it. Sorry. Pokemon Go. It's a new app. Dave Galley's playing it while I'm preaching. Awesome. (laughs) Pokemon Go is a new app on your phone. It's this massive multiplayer video game, if you're not familiar with this at all, where you're a Pokemon trainer who captures and collects these different fantasy creatures called Pokemon out in the wild. What's compelling about the Pokemon Go app is that it's using your smartphone GPS, okay? And in doing that, it's superimposing on top of our world, wherever you are, another sort of world, a world where these Pokemon exist. So if you haven't played it, to give you some idea, as you play Pokemon Go, you're walking through two worlds. In one world, you see a church, and our church sign is a Pokemon stop, just in case you didn't know. In one world, you see a church, a Taco Bell, or a cemetery, right? But in the Pokemon Go world, viewed on the app, you see a Pokemon stop where you can recharge or a Pokemon gym where you can battle against other Pokemon. Two worlds on top of one another. And you're living in both simultaneously. Interestingly, and I'm not going to go further on this, but just in just what I've just set up for you, isn't it kind of like the way Jesus describes the kingdom of God? Right? Two worlds on top of each other simultaneously. John touched on this already, but not yet. There's two realities. I could preach a whole sermon on that. I'm not doing it today. The point of bringing on Pokemon Go is this. Is you, if you don't play, you have to be aware of the intensity that this, of this app's release. Right? People of all ages are playing, man. I mean, it's not just a kid thing. Of all ages, of all groups, the catchphrase of Pokemon is, gotta catch them all. And and people have been out all hours of the day catching Pokemon. At the risk of injury, you've heard about people who've crashed their cars, fallen into, run into walls and different things because they're so focused on what's going on. And what I want to confess to you is I play Pokemon Go. (laughs) Now, I I was a skeptic, I was a critic, and then I went on vacation. And I went on vacation and we were with another family and several of the people we were with were playing Pokemon Go, and if you know anything about me, after a while I was like, man, I'm feeling really left out, I gotta get into this, this thing. So I downloaded the app, and I don't think it's too much to say that I'm all in. I'm level 23, that's pretty good. I spent my vacation seeing plays in in Oregon, and saying, all right, let's go, let's go, let's go walk, let's go find them, let's go. I took my son fishing, not for real fish, for Pokemon. Now, the thing if you haven't played Pokemon, okay, if you haven't played it at all, is you've experienced the intensity of the pursuit. People who are really getting into this, like like me. (laughs) People who, there's a gathering as well, you know, you're walking around with other people who are playing Pokemon, you can recognize them by them looking at the phones and doing this. But there's a gathering, you know, as you walk by, what team are you, Team Valor, no Team Mystic. Yeah. There's also a, a, a gathering around these gyms where you can catch Pokemon, the more people that are together, and conversation comes up. What'd you catch today? Oh, you know, I got a Charmander. Oh, big deal, no big deal. Oh, I got a Pidgey, who cares? But, oh, wow, I heard there's a Gastly over there. Oh, my gosh. So there's this communal thing that happens as well of people gathering around talking about what they found, what they're, where, where to find the next Pokemon, and this celebration when all of a sudden something rare appears. I, myself, am still looking for a Chansey, a Dragonair or a Lapras, if you have to know where they are, please let me know after the service. But I can stop anytime I want to. I'm sort of exaggerating, but my daughter is right there in my line of sight. I'm kind of not. The Pokemon stop, by the way, is right outside my office, so I can sit at my desk and every five minutes update my stuff because it's right in range. Not that I've been doing that at all, just saying. In bringing this up, maybe Pokemon Go is not your thing. And and honestly, based upon what it's done to me, I hope it isn't. The point I'm making is not just about Pokemon Go. It's about what Pokemon Go has awakened in many of us that exists in all of us. What are you invested in? What are you willing to pursue to the point of obsession? Pokemon Go has touched a nerve. It may not be your nerve. You may be running the other direction, but you're flesh and blood, you're human, you're broken just like I am, and each one of us, I don't care who you are in this room, you may not have as many as me, but we all get obsessed by something. We all get obsessed to the point where we're willing to put in the time, we're willing to dedicate the effort, we're willing to kind of have people look at us like, okay, you're all right. Could be stamps, could be a sports team, could be doing crossword puzzles, doesn't matter. It could be all kinds of things. Because you see, the thing is, We are all born with addictive personalities. We are all born with addictive personalities. And the reason why we're all born with an addictive personality, it's a reflection of our sin, our brokenness, because we are all born with what one theologian once called a God-shaped hole. There is this God-shaped hole, this peace that is missing in us. And so the thing is, we come into this world, I don't care who you are, and we come in with this need to worship to worship, to find contentment in giving ourselves in devotion to something, someone other than ourselves. It's something that has to fill that hole. We all try to fill it with different things. We all can be tempted. Uh, It triggers filling it with other things. We're hardwired for worship. It's just a question of what it will be. But the thing is, that contentment eludes us. It never gets completely filled in. It, It never is healed when we try to fill that hole with anything other than devotion to Jesus. Anything other than following after Jesus as the risen Lord. Anything other than being met by his spirit through scripture, being in relationship with other believers through service to those in need and all the various other conduits of grace. Those are the only things, the things of the kingdom that can heal and satisfy that longing. You can get temporary satisfaction. You can get a fix. You can get a hit. But that hole will open itself up again it will just keep sucking and sucking and sucking. Apart from Jesus, we become, no matter what it is, Pokemon Go, whatever, we become prisoners to our addictions. It is only in Christ, through the urgency and pursuit of his kingdom, that we are set free. That we do not become prisoners, we become transformed. We experience real and lasting joy. Don't take my word for it. Because in case we doubt it, and we often do, we often fail to see it, we have so many scriptural examples of seeing the very same thing that you were laughing at about Pokemon Go, which you should, people rejoicing about in scripture because of the kingdom. I want you to think about the Ethiopian eunuch. Do you remember him in the book of Acts? The Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that story. He was a man set for a great career for public service in Ethiopia, and yet interestingly, he is still searching for something more, right? And if you remember that story, he meets Philip, and Philip leads him to find it, the gospel, the kingdom, in the exposition of Isaiah 53. That's what he's reading when he just doesn't understand. And without trying to unpack that passage too much, one of the key things in that is his revelation from God, thanks to Philip, as he reads Isaiah 15, to realize he's invited Whereas before, he believed because he was a eunuch, he was not included. He now is understanding that in Christ, he is invited, he's included in the kingdom. And if you remember that story, in that moment, it changes everything for him. He says, why should I not be baptized right now? And he enters into the waters of salvation, and the entire trajectory, not only of his life, but of a nation changes as he goes home to Ethiopia, not just to serve publicly, but to share the gospel. Think about Cornelius, back still in the book of Acts. Remember Cornelius? If you don't remember Cornelius, Cornelius was a Roman centurion, an important, prominent, successful soldier of the world's greatest army, and yet he was seeking a higher authority, a greater power than the empire of Rome. And Cornelius discovers the kingdom of God as God leads Peter to him to tell him the way of salvation. Do you remember this? And in that moment... Cornelius enlists in a new army. Even though it may cost him in terms of his political advancement and his career goals, he follows a new leader and serves a better kingdom. And if we want to talk about scriptural examples, we bring up every single time because he's so big and large within the pages of scripture Paul, our brother Paul. And my God, Paul is a living illustration of the parables we've looked at today. Remember Paul. Paul was just like the religious leaders of his day that we talked about previously, wasn't he? Paul couldn't see the kingdom of God right in front of him. He failed to perceive the value and worth of God's will being done through Jesus. Right? And yet, while Paul was on the way to Damascus to persecute more Christians, he stumbles upon the kingdom of God. He stumbles upon the kingdom of God. Paul unexpectedly encounters the treasure of Christ. The brilliance, do you remember it, of God's glory blinded him blinded him so Paul could finally see the pearl that was right in front of him. And Paul grabbed hold of that pearl. He grabbed hold of the kingdom, and he never looked back. If you know your Bible, did it cost Paul anything? You bet it did. Paul literally lost everything. He lost his career and his reputation It's not difficult to imagine that he lost many of his family and his friends. And as we know, for the sake of the kingdom, Paul did ultimately give his life. But interestingly, in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 3, if you want to look at it later, Paul offers us insight into his mindset. His heart through it all. My friends, what was the kingdom of God worth to Paul? Hear it in his own words. I count all things lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but from that which is through faith in Christ. My brothers and sisters, all kidding aside, really? In the same way Pokemon Go players are impacted by what they see through their phones, I want to be impacted more and more by the reality of the kingdom of God. To see and pursue what it is that God is doing in and through this world. I want to catch it all. Letting go of my expectations, trading in all that is good in my life, Trusting that I'll get it all back when I take hold of what is best. I want to become more addicted to the kingdom of God in seeking and finding what Jesus is doing and being led by the Spirit into being a part of it all. What is the kingdom worth to you? Do your pursuits, do your goals reflect the glory of God? Can your treasures All your pearls bear the weight of eternity. The good news is that whether we aren't looking for anything in particular or whether we're seeking the very best that life has to offer, by the grace of God, we will find, we will receive the real treasure, the best pearl. What does God want of us? What does the kingdom cost us? All that we are everything we have to give. But my friends, God doesn't ask us to give what he hasn't already given first. What he hasn't already given first. While from the dawn of history, the very beginnings of humanity, from the dawn of history, tribes and nations have gone to war and sacrificed human life over treasures buried underground. Gold, oil, coal, you name it. From the very beginning, the only treasure our Father has ever prized is the reclamation of our lives trapped under the weight of our sin. In and through Christ, God gave His life for us. As the Apostle Paul so powerfully reminds us, we were bought at a price. Jesus was the one who sold all that He had. Emptying himself completely of flesh, blood, and spirit, offering all of himself so that we could enter the kingdom. When we encounter Jesus, when we find this pearl, our estimation and definition of our worth shifts. Our attachment to other things is loosened, and our priorities change. As we seek first the kingdom of heaven, and all that comes with it, all that we need will follow. All we have to do, hear me this morning, all we have to do is follow the leader. All we have to do is let go of that which hinders and continue to strain, to pursue what is set before us, to hold on to what endures, the joy, the power, the glory of the kingdom that comes from a God who is willing to sacrifice everything in order to take hold of us and carry the treasure of our lives of this world, and bring us home. Amen.